If I am the one who is deciding what kind of a life I want, then I might as well create it. So I challenged myself to create the world that I wanted to live in. Hi there, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee Potters, today we meet a resilient warrior woman. I'm talking about Mariam Issa, who fled Somalia's war-torn Mogadishu for Melbourne at age 30 with her family in tow, not speaking a word of English or having a clue as to how she was going to integrate into this foreign land. Fast forward to today, Mariam plays a key role on a variety of asylum seeker and refugee councils and multicultural affairs conversations in Australia. She's the co-founder of Resilient Aspiring Women and the author of distinguished book, A Resilient Life. I'm so intrigued to unpack her personal story and journey and to garner what we can about what it takes to build community, how it is we can strengthen our own resilience and the inspiration that we can take from the journey that Mariam has been on. Here it is. Mary Miss, I can't thank you enough for joining us on Coffee Pods. Welcome to the conversation. Uh, thank you so much. I love the coffee culture. So <laughs> Coffee Pod is just yeah, a beautiful name for the, for the conversation. Actually, in our Somali traditions, we have Shah and Sheko which means tea and stories. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you referenced Somalia. You obviously were born there. You grew up there. Um, you spent a lot of your early life there. Can you take people to what it's like to grow up in Somalia? What was your experience? Um, well, I was born in Somalia, but I left when I was only four years old. Okay. So I grew up in Kenya, which is a neighboring country, and in a small town called Malindi, which is a really beautiful beach um, so it has silver sands and it's a beautiful kind of small town. That sounds glorious. Uh, sort of town and, and, and a village together. So I did have the privilege of growing that, in that tropical island, which was really beautiful. And what was it that, you know, because you moved here, we had four young kids. How old were you at the time? You were. I was 30 years of age when I came to Australia. Talk to us about how you ended up in Australia. Yeah, so I came as a refugee. And I was a very lucky one because I my visa had been processed offshore. So when we came, the the you know the government transitioned us very easily, and we also had family here. So that meant that uh, we came through the family reunion visa. Okay. So in all essence, it was a very easy transition in in the sense of settlement and what is happening now in the refugee um, space. But our, I think our really struggles began when we were positioned in Brighton, which is a very Anglo, very uh, affluent suburb. And we knew nothing about the Western culture. So that's where we started. And I want to ask you, you know, you, you come over. Firstly, can you give us a sense of what, what were you leaving as a refugee, leaving that part of the world at the time? What were the circumstances? Uh, so Somalia um, broke down in 1991 yep. as um, civil war broke out. And so the country just really disintegrated and a lot of Somalis were leaving the country. So we were displaced eight years before we came to Australia. Wow. Yeah. So I came to Australia in 1998. And what I is remember it? it was 3rd November, Cape. Okay. Yes. Oh, there you go, you arrived on Melbourne. Yep. What a day to Cape land in Melbourne. Yeah, so, yeah. And um, I came pregnant with my fifth child. Wow. So it was a really big um, 
big shift into in, in my life. And how scary is it to be in a war-torn country and to spend a period of time displaced? I mean, many people wouldn't have any ability to understand quite what that must to be understand. like. Understand? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a turmoil. It's really to 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 state it mildly. I bet. <laughs> yeah, but it you know when you are in a crisis, I think you just you know that's your life. That's your day-to-day, and you learn how to cope. You adapt to the circumstances. So we did. We did adapt from being refugee from Somalia. I came through um, the refugee, a small refugee boat to Kenya, Kenya shores. Again, I was a very lucky refugee because I had family in Kenya. I was, you know, I lived in Kenya. I had only gone back to Somalia because my husband was from Somalia and I was married there. But the transitioning, when I came, I, I was already speaking the language. So I was speaking Swahili. I came back to my, I felt that it, that was back to my home. And the unfortunate thing that happened in that space was that when I was on the shores of Kenya, I had a Kenyan passport, but I wouldn't be let in. Why? Because I had Somali children. No and they way. wanted to send refugees back to where you came from. Just like what's happening now in the spaces of, in Australia, and it's crazy because I've never, f- I've always felt that Kenya was my country. I didn't feel as a Somali, and then when that happened, I felt like, whoa, what, where is home then? Yeah. And I questioned that, you know, where do I belong? That must be really um, a pretty big question when you've spent your whole life kind of identifying with a particular place to all of a sudden go, do I have a home? Do I have a home? And then I came to Australia, made it home. I live here for 20 years now. Yeah. And every time I leave Melbourne Airport, my passport is taken away, although it is an Australian passport and has to be checked. Really? Literally. Every and time? Every Extra time. security? Extra security. That so is an interesting irony, reflection of where we are. It's very interesting, isn't it? So for me then, uh, the question of where is home kind of comes up every time. Because again, I was thrown away from the home. If Somalia was home, then it disintegrated and I was chased by one of the tribes in Somalia. Wow. So I think my reflections and my understanding of home then had to be the inner home. I had to go inside to really understand where do I belong in this? Where is my home? You mentioned uh, landing in Brighton, which is uh, probably one of the uh, less culturally diverse uh, suburbs of Melbourne, to put it in a diplomatic manner. did you know the language? Did you have any sense of Australian culture? I mean, how much of a, a shock was Australia for you? Uh, it was shocking when I came and it was like a quantum leap. Everything that I knew about myself literally disintegrated. And I feel like culture is a currency. Mm. And when your currency, you cannot trade with that currency, then you have nothing. And the currency that I'm given, I have to learn how to trade with it as well. So it was a really irritable space where, yeah. yeah, I was really... And also I felt like a victim at that time because, you know, a poor me. Why is this happening to me? So I did go through phases in life. I did go through that uh, phase of victimhood where I was questioning who am I? I am a victim of war. And as we talk, and again, we come back to storytelling. And we tell these stories, and as much as you entertain whatever story that you entertain becomes your story, becomes your identity. And then I realized that around me were also people who were victimizing themselves. 
And with the grace of God, I surpassed that space of victimhood and entered a phase of anger, which was really so much better than being a victim <laughs> because then you could sort of blame other people for your problems and you could point your fingers outside and say, look, this is not, it's not my creation. Someone else created this. And I stayed there as an activist. I stayed there for quite a while. An angry and activist. An angry activist. And I realized... Um, after a while that every time I left the anger I would come back to victimhood because it would be like that pattern of you know mm. you get exhausted and then you come back and and then one day I really because I am a woman of faith and I pray a lot I had a breath of transition to another space were you praying As for it in particular I was or did it just happen for it because I was exhausted yeah. I was like this is crazy and then, yeah, I entered that phase of, of empowerment, a phase where I did not recognize myself, but it was a phase where I felt like, what kind of a world do I really want to live in? Mm. And that question, when we ask, I always say this, when we ask powerful questions, we get powerful answers. Oh, and I love that. Yeah, That's yeah. so true. Mm. So when I asked that question, I was, yeah, um, I felt like, okay, if I am the one who is deciding what kind of a life I want, then I might as well create it. So I challenged myself to create the world that I wanted to live in. And how did you define that world? What did that world look like when you were imagining that and, and challenging yourself to create that? What did it look like and how different was it from, from the world you felt like you were in? It, it was very different because I grew up in, in an in independency. You know, communal culture is a dependent culture. All you know about yourself is through the other. So I did not actually have a chance in my life to have known about individuality. Wow. So the world outside of me was an individual world. I'd come into the Western world. And I think the, my vivid um, exposure to that was one early morning, winter morning, and I was, you know, um, standing behind the heater as we do, <laughs> and it's really cold, and I'm thinking, how am I going to face this morning? And how am I going to take my children to school? This is just too crazy. And then I look outside... And we have this big glass window and I see a woman in lycra pushing a pram with one hand and holding the leash of a dog in the other. And she had perfect makeup on her face. And somehow I feel that woman sent me a permission slip. I'm doing it. You can too. And I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. How, how is she doing that? Yeah. And again, when we ask questions, we get answers. I just, a reflection popped into my mind of the women that I grew among. And these women were called the Giriyama women. Okay. They, had, they were women who nurtured the earth. And they all, they all had a shamba, a small plot of land that they cultivated um, food in. And every morning, about three in the morning, they would wake up, um, harvest their produce, put it in a really big basket and swing that on their head, tie their child on their back and walk sometimes a marathon, sometimes half a marathon. Wow. And those women were called Mamamboga, the nurturer of the village. Wow. So I remembered the resilience of those women and realized I'm not as weak as I think. So I think, you know, my watching other women and having those reflections gave me 
and ability to be myself. That's really powerful. Yeah. yeah. And I know, you know, your part, a huge part of your work is women's empowerment work and working to lift women up. For you, how do, like, reflecting on life as, because I often feel like we have these two very different dialogues, right? We have this dialogue about the developed world's woman and the mm-hmm. developing world's woman mm-hmm. and the, the various balance, um, barriers and challenges that they face. You yeah. know, we talk about pay equity here and, you know, those sorts of things. <laughs> very different story to what we're talking about in Africa, right? Yes. How do you reflect on gender equality and, and the challenges for women? Do you see more in common or are there differences we don't appreciate enough? Yeah. What's your observation? Uh, my observation has been one of commonality because I've never looked for separations. You know, the more we're looking for what divides, what separates us is the more we get that, that the, the gap wider. Yep. So for me, it's always been like looking at women and what do we have in common and always bridging that gap. And I realized that, you know, uh, the similarities are way too, you know, uh, too common for us. Mm. And, and, and as women, I think we share a lot in, 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 in the way we nurture, the way we, you know, we work in our communities. And uh, for me, I think I became a very curious woman in, in Brighton. I really wanted to know the, the Australian woman in her natural habitat. Mm-hmm. So I went and worked in Brighton Homes. And I saw the inside of a home and how how they worked. How do these women work? How is it possible that she's... Because I saw the Western woman everywhere. I saw her in... She was the teacher of my children. Mm. She was um, the doctor I visited. She was the community um, worker. So I wanted to know her secret. And how does she do this? And so in my pursuit, to knowing and, and, and my curiosity, I mm. realized that uh, there was a less apparent truth in the West as well. And for me, because I have seen the glamour and the glory and the beauty of the, the culture that I've come into, and Brighton, as you, can, as you know, is a very beautiful uh, oh, area. Stunning. Outstanding, Absolutely. yeah. And the homes that I cleaned, you know, sometimes I would wonder, what am I cleaning? You know, mm. it's the, the, they're beautiful and, and clean to me. But I realized that when I went into those homes that it was really a big, big spaces that no one really lived in. Right. Yeah. And later on, I worked in aged care centers and then that did not make sense to me as well. I felt that for us, you know, the elders were the wisdom of the community. Yep. And yet here they were kept away from the community. And then I saw young children in shopping malls, you know, roaming in shopping malls because they were waiting for family, you know, for the parents to come home and there was no one home. And I saw the destruction there as well. I saw, um, I was reading about young children committing suicide. I was reading about the disconnect of, you know, using um, drugs and alcohol and all the, the problems. And then to me, I... I felt that, wow, you know, Africa's problems or where I've come from, everything was, you know, we could see it. But here it was hidden Mm. in the material. The material was hiding it, the beauty and all that. But underneath it, there was a less apparent truth. And so that's when I, again, asked a powerful question. Why am I here? Because I do believe, honestly, that no one ever is anywhere randomly. We are, like called, that. we are called to the spaces that we occupy. And we have to ask the question, why then? And for me, it was just a, a very curious question. Why am I here? Why have I landed in this, this backyard? 
And then I realized that I was here to remember my individuality and to remind others of the communal culture. And my mother always used to say, the heart is where, you know, if you can host someone in the heart, you can host them in your home. And that's how my community garden in my backyard started. I wanted to ask you about that because one of the things I love about your activism in recent years, you've done things like produce uh, a cookbook, you've done things like set up the community garden, these ways where you're really bringing culture, nurturing, inviting people in, building community. How did you decide that as your approach to the version of the world you wanted to see? Because it's one thing to ask the question, yeah. then it's yeah. another thing to go out and to pursue answers. Answer. Yes. So when I went into Brighton Homes, like, you know, I really was curious and wanted to know. And then I realised that, you know, no one knew about my culture. Mm. And I could be as angry as anyone. And I was angry and no one would understand me. So I felt that what can I do? to connect with people. And I think my heart space also opened and I felt that with activism, if I was gonna be an activist, then I would choose to be the one with compassion, to educate people on my culture. And I did a lot of the work, which in my African culture is not a good way of hosting. You know, when someone comes into your backyard or into your home, as a host, I think you need to do some of the work and I felt that none of that was present at the time in the space that I was. So I did a lot of the pushing. And through that pushing though, I think people started to understand my culture slowly. And I feel food being the best catalyst for social change mm. because we can relate with each other through food. And I had the privilege you know, of being a good cook. I was cooking since I was 10 years old and I love food, I love um, hosting and I love bringing people together. So I think my, that combination of loving people, loving food, gave me an avenue to really become a, a compassionate activist. And did you find, even with those first couple of, when, you, when you're dangling your toes in and having a go for the first time, were people open and receptive or did it take some time to break down barriers? It takes some time. I think you know, people are not willing to listen to your stories in the beginning. And I... What do you think that is? I think the sense... Sometimes I feel like the sense of curiosity isn't present, mm. yeah, in the Western culture, you know. And uh, we might go as far as Bali or even <laughs> further for an experience, but we don't really want to know about the people around us which to me was really, and, and also living in Kenya and in Malindi, we had a lot of tourists. Mm -hmm. So the tourists weren't very curious about the local culture. Okay. So they would be coming for you know, the beaches and, and the sun and all that, but they weren't really curious about the people. And I think it's, you know, um, yeah, it, it was a sense of lack of, sometimes I feel lack of curiosity about the other. What do you wish that people who are in the majority knew about what it was like to be different or to be in the minority? What do you wish they understood? I think the knowing that putting the empathy, you know, putting yourself in the other's shoe and wanting, you know, at least questioning yourself. How would I want to be treated if I was on the other side? And I think that isn't so hard. No. <laughs> yeah, it's not so hard. And children do it really well. 
Mm. And I think with um, a lot of, you know, my I have five children and they were going to school. So they would be coming home with friends. I would cook for them. And then the other day, you know, another a child would say, oh, have you tasted Abdul's, you know, mom's cooking? It's really beautiful. And then I would have that, you know, children coming for just that curious and knowing of the other culture and wanting to taste the food and all that kind. So I started with the, you know, my children's friends and then it extended to the families and, and slowly, yeah, we expanded our way. We have to do yeah. more not to lose that childlike curiosity, don't we? Because it just, so it seems to disappear in our teen teenage years and we just never seem to quite recapture it. Yes, yes. And I think we also have to be, um, you know, to, to be curious about each other and to tell stories. I think I, I come from an oral culture and the Somali language wasn't written until 1972. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's very oral and we used the stories for everything. We used the stories to settle disputes, we used the stories for education, we used the stories in, you know, for poetry. And in, in our culture, we use riddles and, and metaphors and so it's, it's a very poetic language. And the power of storytelling, I think, has the ability to, to connect our humanity. Mm. And I used, I used that power. I didn't even know that I was a storyteller until I came to the West. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because that was just life in, in it Somalia. Was, it was just life in Somalia and everybody was a storyteller. So you, you had this just big platform. And now my, my family is really quietly surprised when I say that I'm, I'm a storyteller. And they go, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm a storyteller. Yeah. So I learned the, the laws of storytelling. And I was going to ask you, what makes a great story? Yeah. So what really makes a great story is about not only the teller but the listener as well and I think we carry the same volume the listener and the teller and when the two are connected is the only the story is what connects us if the two the listener and the teller are not connected the story will be hanging somewhere in between mm. it's not going to make any sense but when we connect then the story is the chain that really comes and it clicks. And the place we tell the story is also a powerful story. And why we tell the story is also another, another law. Why do I want to share this story? What, is, what do I want for my listeners mm. to take away from, from this story? And so it's, it's really important to, I think... So easy to tell a story, but it's not as easy to be a listener. Mm. Yeah, and listening is really what gives the power to any story, whether you're telling to dignify someone else, or you're telling to sell something, or you're telling it for any anything. It's it's really important to have that deep listening. Uh, that is so true. Thank you for that. Mariam, I'm mindful of the time and I want to take the opportunity to pick your brain with one final question that we love to ask of all our guests. And that is, if you could leave our listeners with one bit of advice, one story, uh, one bit of inspiration to enable them to go out and be the change they want to see in the world, what would you like to leave them with? Thank you so much for inviting me, Holly. And uh, my parting words would be that both grief and grace live in the heart. And in accepting both as equally important to us, 
we learn to process this pain and birth it into something significant and meaningful for ourselves. And I urge everybody out there to really um, learn to sit with their discomfort and be willing to challenge it instead of being a victim around it. Thank you so much again. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.